God. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 19. Verses 13 through 19. This is our Lord. And here is He working at gathering His men to make disciples as an example for us. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And He, Jesus, went on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. And He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and brother, and John, the brother of James. To them He gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and verse 19, Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, thank you for tuning our hearts this morning. We may think it's very important to sing in tune, but that pales in comparison to our hearts being in tune with you. So often, Lord, this world weighs on us, pulls on us, and our heart may not be always in tune with you. And I pray that we, the body of Christ, would strive by your grace, your mercy, your spirit to be in tune with you, Lord. It is those times we see your glory, Lord Jesus. We see your beauty. We see that you are worthy and we sing he is. Thank you for capturing us, Lord. We we would still be on that hell-bound path if it wasn't for your grace. That alone, Lord, should tune our heart immediately. That you've given a gift that we do not deserve. And then, Lord, the grace you provide daily. You awaken us in the mornings and give us life. You meet our daily need. You provide daily bread for us. You have forgiven all of our sins, Lord. We are free people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to capture us. May we be enamored with you. And may we worship you, Lord. Lord, cause us not to be a church that is a church of taking, always coming to get something. But Lord, may we always be giving something. Giving our hearts, giving worship, giving adoration, giving of ourselves, Lord. This is what tunes our hearts, Lord. So today as we look into your word and we watch the master discipler, may you tune our hearts, Lord, that everyone in this room would have a desire to be further discipled and to disciple others, Lord. The command is given to all of us. So Lord, help us in this. We give you praise, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Titled the sermon, The Greatest Example of Making Disciples. 
And when we study the ministry of disciple-making, which um, we all should be studying, but particularly pastors, we turn to the one who is the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it isn't hard to see that Jesus surrounds himself with men and women that he lovingly nurtures and, and he disciples as followers of himself. And that's the goal of a disciple. To teach them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe his word, to engage with him and get in behind him. Can you imagine spending three years with the master disciple? Can you imagine what that would be like? Every word, every teaching, every bit of instruction was absolutely perfect. He never had to correct himself. He never had to go back and say, hey, I've done a little further study on the, that verse and I want to explain that to you. Everything was perfect. And this was a father's plan for the son to live a perfect life, really in obscurity for 30 years. We see his birth. We see him in the temple at age 12 just briefly. But lives a life of obscurity to fulfill that perfect sacrifice. And then in the last three years before his death, burial, and resurrection, he emerges. And there he gathers disciples who he wants to be seen with. Isn't that amazing? He's lived in obscurity. In the last three years of his life, he comes out of that, gathers people who he wants to be seen with. That's an astounding thing to think about. You know, that's what he did with you. He gathered you. He opened your mind to his truth. He plunged his spirit into your heart. And he gathered you to himself so he could be seen with you. That that, thought struck me this week. And we see him do that over and over in his ministry. The majority of Jesus' ministry was discipling these 12 men. That was the majority. We only have around roughly 42 days of his life recorded in the four gospel recordings. But he was with them every day, the Bible teaches. And every day he poured into the life of these men. Jesus poured truth and he poured a perfect example into his disciples. And he knew, and this was fascinating, He knew they did not understand it all, but the Holy Spirit would remind them of that, of all the truths that he taught. You remember John 14, 26? Jesus says this upon telling them that he's going to ascend to his Father and prepare a place for them. Later in that chapter, he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, his own Spirit would come reside with them, is what he is telling them, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Oh, what a blessing that was. Um, I've often thought, man, how did they take in all of that? And there's times we see where Jesus would say, I'm going to Jerusalem. There I will be delivered to the hands of the religious elite. There they will crucify me or kill me and I will be buried and raised again. And they're going, "Uh, hey, who gets to sit on your left and right? Like, you didn't hear that? There was so much information coming on them. In fact, the last week of his life, there's the most recorded instruction that we have in the scriptures of Jesus with his disciples. And yet, it needed the Spirit of God to help them understand what he was teaching. And once that Spirit, united with truth of the Word of God, 
was taught to them, they became the most boldest men on the planet. I love studying that transition. Jesus has resurrected from the grave. They're hiding behind locked doors. He makes appearances twice to them. And then the Spirit falls upon them. This is the identifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit now that's always going to remain with a believer at the time of conversion now comes upon them. And these frightened men who denied Christ, who hid in an upper room from those who may be seeking to kill them, become the most boldest men on the planet. In fact, they go right in front of the killers of Christ and preach truth. Jesus often sent converts back into their own places. Uh, the woman at the well, she was sent right back to her people. The, the man, uh, the demonic that was in the tombs, he was sent right back. But his men that he raises up, he spends these years to prepare them for the greatest, the greatest act that he was going to do. And that was to build his church. To take the message of the gospel to a people that was not just Jewish, but every nation, every tribe on the earth. That was the goal to train these men to do those things. Now, Paul certainly followed up that uh, next generation. Um, we see those 12 men, one deny Christ, fall away. We'll talk about him in a minute. Um, they add Matthias to them. These 12 men go out. And then God raises up the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting as we think about the disciples spending three years with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also that Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 1 that he too spent three years with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it seems he had one-on-one -on -one tutelage out there in the desert as God prepared him for his ministry. You'll often see Paul say throughout the scriptures, The Lord told me, the Lord gave to me. So the Lord directed and discipled the Apostle Paul as well. So Christ's ministry proves that he often uses a bunch of nobodies to change the world. Let me give you a few thoughts on today's text. Number one, Christ rejects the religious establishment. Christ rejects the religious establishment. Mark now transitions just for a moment from Jesus' public ministry to his personal selection of these disciples, these men that have been foreordained to walk with him, these future apostles of the church. First of all, we learned what Jesus didn't want. They were a great contrast, these men that he is going to select to what we have seen already in the scriptures. This religious elite those false teachers of Judaism that had rejected Jesus and they clung tightly to their traditions and, and their power that they had. They did not want to give that up. What contrast to these men. Those religious elite we saw in last week's text that they were so angry with the Lord Jesus that they would unite themselves with the Herodians, a group that was, was pro-Rome and anti-Israel and anti uh, Judaism and religion and all of that, they would join themselves to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, now, the religious leaders are rejected by Jesus Christ. They've rejected him, and so God has rejected them, but we can see where Jesus is turning away from them. Jesus was sent to gather the flock. It's the exact opposite of what the religious leaders were doing. 
Jesus went to the common people. He got down with them. He cared for them. He shepherded them. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that those who shepherd his people need to act like him. Follow his lead. And he was describing these people um, that had been caring, supposedly caring for his people as not shepherds at all. Let me show you a passage out of Ezekiel. Turn to your Old Testament. If you find Jeremiah, you can go to Lamentations and then Ezekiel. If you hit Daniel, you went too far. But Ezekiel chapter 34. We see uh, this promise, this prophecy said of, of Ezekiel as he is, this nation is now in captivity in Babylon. And Ezekiel is the pro- prophet out to the people. But as I read this, think about what's happening. Jesus is rejecting the religious elite of Israel and he's turning to a bunch of nobodies to be men that he will train who will eventually be the leaders and disciples of the coming church. Listen to this text, uh, Ezekiel 34, 1-11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. As we read, think too, this happens in today's world as well as far as application. Prophesy to say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. But will, but with force and severity, you have dominated them. Isn't that sound so right in Jesus' day? And even today. Verse 5, they were scattered for the lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. The flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because of my flock has become prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for the lack of a shepherd And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed the flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding the sheep. So the shepherds will not feed will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. And in this last verse, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. What an incredible tax. And certainly, contextually, in that day, he was speaking of the nation of Israel that is in captivity. Um, they are responsible for their sins, but their leaders had led them astray. As we apply that to the day of Jesus, this was true then. And so clearly they needed to be removed. And Jesus is going to do so by selecting a group of 12 everyday, ordinary men, none who have real strong ties to the religious establishment of the day. And this alone, this becomes a tremendous rebuke to their system, to what they were doing. 
And thus they rejected Jesus. In fact, they grew in their hatred. And they grew so much that they would put him to death. And though that was the plan of God for him to substitute himself for us on the cross, he knew, he knew that he must disciple those men who would carry that gospel message on. These new leaders would be developed under um, his strength. These new shepherds would come under his discipleship and he would prepare them for this coming church, for every tribe and tongue to hear the word of God. It's interesting, these men, as you study these men, none of them had resumes. There's nothing in the scriptures where they come to Jesus. We, We notice that he went and got each and every one of them. They did not fill out applications. They didn't come with long pedigrees of, of religious order that they descended from. They didn't flaunt their educational successes or achievements or even the social clubs that they were tied to. See, these are problems today. Often we're after the man who fits the suit a person who has all that background, and yet the Lord shows us over and over, he mostly uses nobodies. <laughs> it's what he does. And he proves this, and the scriptures understand this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. I want you to see, Paul knew this. This was um, written in scriptures for us to learn from. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, verse 26, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, brethren, now listen to this, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God, God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, positional, right? Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, just as is written, let him who boast, let him boast in the Lord. I love that text. I remember many times as just a young man telling God, you have the wrong guy. <laughs> you, you don't take dumb cowboys and you know, you make them these guys. you got the wrong guy. You begin to realize that that's what God's often after. He's after that person who often doesn't think that he's the person or she's the person to lead that ministry to care for those that he would put in charge. And so he goes and he gathers instead of having people come to him with their resumes. And often it is not the most gifted that bring the most glory to God. Back to our text in Mark chapter 3, we see our second thought here. Praying, calling, prayer and calling in Christ's ministry plan. Look what he does here as he prepares for this. Verse 13, and he, Jesus, went on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Here we find Jesus retreating to a mountain. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say where or what mountain this is. We know that he's up in Galilee. He's up north and somewhere out of Capernaum. 
But the statement is given so you understand that he withdraws from the everyday circumstances of life. He pulls himself away from the difficulties that are going on there. The crowds and throngs were overwhelming. We saw in our last text that he said, get a boat ready for me so I can stand in that, just so I can get back from everyone who's trying to just simply touch me. So he retreats. He retreats. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the parallel text says that he prayed, how long? All night. He prayed all night. Anybody ever tried to do that? That's not easy to do. <laughs> I, and I, I get sleepy around 9, 10, I'm pretty much done. Pray all night. Walk out in the middle of nowhere and pray. Look, I would really encourage you to take times of your life where you set things aside, where you say, Lord, I want to go and spend time just with you, with the word, and talk with you. And, and, and it's amazing, particularly when we're about to make big decisions, decisions that we need the will of God. We need him to show us what he has for us. And, and Jesus is such a great example here. He prays all night. And notice, so after a full night of speaking with the Father, communing with the Almighty Father in perfect prayer life, no, no loss of concentration, <laughs> he does this. He summons those whom he wanted, those that he himself wanted. It's interesting the pronouns that are linked together there. After praying with his father, he himself knew exactly who would be his disciples and why they would be them. So you find the will of God when you talk to God. It's very hard to know the will of God for your life if you don't speak with him. You can wrestle around with take this job or do this or, or that or marry this person or, or whatever. But if you don't talk to the one who knows all things, it's very difficult to know what he has for you. And so Jesus provides such a great model of one who prays. This is a similar wording in, in the way Jesus called his first five. He summons them to himself. But now he's calling all 12 to come before him. And notice the text says, and they came to him. And they came to him. He summons exactly who he wants. And there they are before him. Clearly, as noted in the preceding sermons, uh, Jesus' call is irresistible. Matthew didn't say, oh, wait a minute, you know who I am. I'm, I'm collecting taxes for Rome. I'm hated by your people. Matthew leaves everything, follows him, in fact, throws a party. Peter and John and James leave fishing nets and, and are gathered to him, just left to the family business and off they go. He has an irresistible call, not only in salvation, but also when he calls you to do something. When he calls you to become part of a ministry or, or to lead someone or care for somebody or disciple somebody, he gives you this irresistible call to engage in those things. So Jesus as he always does, takes the initiative and he pursues these, these men and he selects them according to the Godhead sovereign plan. Later he would remind them of this truth. You remember John chapter 15, verse 16? You did not choose me, but what? But I chose you. And for what? This is great, great discipleship here. I, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 
and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, it may be given to you. Back to our text, verse 14, he begins now to share with us what, why he called them. Verse 14, he says he appointed 12, look at this, so that they would be with him and that he could spend, excuse me, send them out to preach. Now, literally it says he appointed 12. The, the translation is a word that means to make something or to be something. And so you could literally say he made 12. <laughs> That's, that's the idea of the, the wording there. So it's this definite act. It's this creative, distinct group that he has put together with all their flaws and imperfection and even a betrayer among them. And verse 14 also tells us why he did it. He has both a present tense meaning and he has a future tense meaning. Notice first that they would be with him. That they would be with him. Many have said, well, he needed companionship. Mm. I'm sure in his humanity he enjoyed having these men with him. But he's eternal God. <laughs> he has not need of anyone. And so we begin to realize that he wanted them with him for many reasons. This was a training ground. This is where he was going to pour into these men for the future of all tribes and tongues to come to him. This was learning directly from the master. This was on-the-job experiences. This is learning to be imitators of Christ. And boy, did they. <laughs> they imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, most of them died death similar to Christ's death. <laughs> Not only did they imitate Christ in their preaching and their teaching and exalting the Father and, and explaining a true, pure gospel devoid of man's works, they went all the way to imitating Christ in their death. <laughs> he wanted them with them. This would be absolutely imperative for the foundation of the church. In fact, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2.20. He says, speaking about the church and the apostles, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the very chief cornerstone. So they become the, the teaching built on Christ. He's the cornerstone. Everything has to be built on him. These apostles become the foundation of what we believe today. Isn't that amazing? The same thing they taught in the first century, we're still teaching. We haven't had to change it. We haven't had to amend it. We had to come up with something new. As so many religions constantly transform their, their, their scriptures and change their beliefs, we have not had to do that. Because the apostles followed the Lord Jesus Christ and the church followed the apostles. And we keep teaching that exact same truth that he has done. They also mimicked what Jesus did with them. Paul says, look, to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, do these things, therefore my son, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be strong in me, Timothy. Be strong in Christ. Be strong in his grace. It's as though Paul was saying, look, I've enjoyed setting an example for you, but you're going to come behind me, and your goal is to be strong in Christ, in his word, his truth, his grace. And then he leaves an example that was done to him. Christ did this to Paul. He did this with the, uh, with the apostles. He says, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Can you see that with Jesus and his disciples? Many people heard the teaching. And often when you study his instruction, he's turning right to the disciples. And he's speaking directly to them as the crowds would listen in. 
And so Paul says, the things that you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And so it's a, it's a cycle that began with Jesus Christ and his disciples, discipling others. And their last, some of the last words of Jesus was, go make disciples. One of the things Tom Sheehan and, and our pastoral staff and elders have been talking about is discipleship is that one area that the church continues to fail at. It's, it's just a difficult thing. We preach well, we sing well, we do a lot of things, but we fail in discipleship. And yet that's what the Lord has called us to do. And so repeated in the scriptures is these apostles, including Paul, who said, look, let's do what Jesus did. Let's find people, teach them what we have been taught, and so they'll teach others and so forth. And that was the goal. Second, we see in verse 14, there's a future tense command here is that he could send them out to preach. See, they were being prepared to be heralders of the gospel. They were watching Jesus in every situation. And they were learning to herald the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. These men were going to come up to incredible situations. It isn't long before Peter and John are put in front of the killers of Christ, Acts chapter 4. And the Bible says they encircled around them and they stood in the midst of them. And when you study that text all the way down to verse 13 where the people say, aren't these untrained men? Because they were amazed that they began to preach this gospel that was solidarity built on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name, there's no other way but through Jesus Christ. These are the people who killed Christ. They were so emboldened by the gospel. And so Jesus said, I'm calling these 12. I'm bringing these men to me. One, because I want them with me. I want to train them. I want to teach them. I want them close so they're ready to go when the time comes. And then I want to send them to preach. Preach the word. Not mess around with it. Not change it and make it seem fitting to the time. Preach. Preach my truths. And then finally, verse 15, look what he says. That they would have authority to cast out demons. I mean, a lot of people made a lot about this verse. Whole ministries go around this type of stuff. But when you preach the gospel, Satan's, <laughs> Satan is bound. You know that? I was sitting with a dear sister this week and talking about some struggles of life. And we, and we thought, you know, as we wrestled through some of those things that were going on, we, we talked about them and, and, you know, sometimes you can't establish whether that's Satan attacking or is that my flesh, because my flesh loves sin, but Satan loves sin. And, we, and sometimes we don't know. And, and so we sat down and we said, the answer is the gospel. The answer is preach the gospel.